You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio. To kick off 2023, this month, Roxana Moran spoke with Athena Pappas and Gabrielle Stegg to hear their thoughts on what's to come. Hello, it's Roxana Moran from uh, Rock's Heart Radio, TCTMD. Um, our first recording of the year, 2023. And I have two very special guests. Um, I'm going to start with Dr. Athena Pappas, who's Chief of Cardiology Division, Director of Lifespan Cardiovascular Institute and Director of Echocardiography in Rhode Island, the Miriam and Newport Hospitals. She is a professor of medicine and a previous um, at, at Brown University and, and a previous uh, um, president of the American College of Cardiology. Welcome, Athena. If it's okay, I'm going to call you Athena. Perfect. Great to see you, Athena. Thank you. Nice to be with you, and thank you for uh, for your insights. Um, and uh, my my next guest is a close friend and colleague, um, Professor Gabrielle Stegg, who's chief of the Department of Cardiology in Hospital Bichat, uh, right. in Paris, um, uh, who's vice president in charge of research of the Board of Assistant Public Hospital uh, de Paris from uh, since 2018. He is a professor of cardiology and uh, also uh, in the National Heart and Lung Institute and Imperial College of London, UK, as well as in his uh, institution in Paris. Uh, he's got so many titles, it's, it's difficult and so many amazing honors. He just received the Grand Prix Claude Bernard de, de, de la Ville uh, de Paris in 2019, and just recently the Clem, from the Clement of the Foundation, uh, the, the Prix Suzanne Clement of the Foundation Simone and Sino uh, del Duca in 2022. It's unbelievable, Gabrielle. What a year you've had and what, what an amazing uh, resume. It's hard to, uh, to, to get it all together. Welcome. And we're just so happy to have you. And our um, plan today is to just talk about the year we just had and the year we're about to start. So 2022, what got you excited? What disappointed you? Uh, should we start with you, Athena? Certainly. Let's let's start with the positive. I was so excited to be back in person at our scientific meetings. Um, the smiles on people's faces, just reflecting the joy and energy of connecting scientifically, seeing friends again in person, whether it was ACC, ESC, all of the meetings, and then in person at our own institutions. Um, I felt like it was a positive personal feeling um, and there was so much joy, but also you could feel that the research we're going to be able to start doing again and exchanging both research and clinical ideas that we weren't able to do a lot of clinical trials, right? Or people were able to do some, but there were so many limitations and challenges and people were energized that we were going to be able to do everything again, seeing people, the, um, the science was back, the seeing clinical patients and touching them again was back. So that was the positive, I think, for sure. It's a positive, isn't it? Um, I bet, Gabrielle, you feel the same. Was it the same feeling for you? It was really great to see each other face to face again. Uh, everybody was elated to be together. Uh, you could sense that, the energy and the enthusiasm. Um, and I really look forward to future meetings in person. Uh, plus, we've had um, we've really had important results, both on the positive and negative side uh, this year. There was plenty of good stuff in the trials we've done, 
and there's more upcoming in, in the in the following year. So uh, it's an exciting time for uh, uh, for cardiology and and cardiovascular research. Yeah. So what was your favorite trial of last year that you loved so much? Well. Um, there were there were a couple of trials that I think were somewhat underrated, but are really great studies. The first couple I like are very pragmatic studies. There was a trial about defibrillation that was that got published in the New England Journal of Medicine, by the way, looking at uh, the ways to handle refractory cardiac arrest with repeat defibrillation and comparing various arrangements of the defibrillator pads. It's a, it's a very simple idea, but uh, it's a very practical result that uh, if you do a dual defibrillation with a sequential defibrillation with a, a couple of pair of pads, you can substantially increase your success in getting a refractory cardiac arrest defibrillated. And uh, now more than ever after the Hamlin episode, everybody understands how important it is to be effective in rapidly defibrillating patients. So um, this is, you know, simple Simple idea, pragmatic trial, major result that almost doubles the rate of success of defibrillation. I think this is simply practice changing. In fact, the, the week it got published, we uh, assembled the department and decided uh, we were going to implement it right away. Wow, amazing. You know, many of our listeners don't know that you're quite the American football fan. So yes, that is a very important um, fact to share with all our listeners about Gabrielle Stegg. Uh, and I wonder, were you watching live uh, the uh, the No, the it, it was story? quite late. So I, I tend to watch the game <laughs> offline. Um, and I, I learned about this uh, awful episode on the next day. And But I think the, this, the story from this is how um, this got the nation's attention about cardiac arrest and defibrillation and the impact it will have on the change of survival and how many thousands of people will learn CPR and how many hundreds of defibrillators will be implanted in stadiums. And I think that's really what's important about this story beyond the fortunately uh, uh, happy ending for, for uh, Damar Hemlin. It's also the impact that one episode like this can have. And I, I certainly think that we should leverage these types of stories to improve the chain of survival. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. A picture is, a thousand, is worth a thousand words and watching that video of him falling and then a true cardiac arrest on television. What did you think about that, Athena? I think it was, it was shocking. I was um, happy that they didn't show it in clips again and again to be respectful of that. Um, but it's, I think, you know, to Gabrielle's point, it really, resumed a conversation that had been a bit dormant about um, it's not prevention. That was a worry that it was too, football is violent, but it's about the response to it that's so important to sudden death. And people learned, there were everybody talking about CPR and defibrillators that, um, and I mean, non-medical people. So I think it raised an incredible awareness. So it, a horrible thing, but the understanding that you can't prevent some things um, but mm -hmm. it's the response to that. So I would agree that it was a horrifying thing to see it. The good that could come from it uh, could be really magnified. Well, no question. So what's going on in Echo, in the Echo world that we should know about that was exciting in 2022, Athena? 
I think there continues to be evolution. And one of the exciting things about all of cardiology is the technology that evolves. I was just mentoring somebody about going into cardiology, but look at the work of strain and applying that, not just for the technique that's out there, but whether it's LA strain in atrial fibrillation and stroke, some work that the team here is doing with the neurologist, um, or looking at that with regards to intervening at the right time for different valvular disease. So I was pretty excited about a lot of the things we're seeing in some of the newer subtle work around strain um, in particular. Um, I think that's an echo. You know, the other thing uh, as a side comment about exciting articles is that the paper that was presented, the late breaking trial about treating mild hypertension in pregnancy, which sounds like a not important thing to discuss, but it really, the impact of that paper is substantial because there had been such a fear of adverse fetal effect, uh, events that we hadn't been adequately treating that. Um, and what a well done uh, research study in a challenging population, right? So a vulnerable population to show that treating hypertension in pregnancy really improves outcome for mother and fetus in a safe way. So that was to me, one of the most exciting papers. Um, oh yeah, that's, a, that's a good one. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's pretty important paper. And you know, it's amazing because in our fields, we're, we're looking for those like really big blockbusters, but both of these were simple interventions that made huge, huge difference mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and have an important public in implication in public health and improving, you know, uh, certainly maternal uh, fetal uh, health, improving that, and then on, on the, the defibrillator, really saving lives. Uh, there's nothing more... Uh, more devastating than a sudden cardiac death that is in a young person or a, a vibrant person that you're not bringing back. Well, 2023 is here. Uh, we're very excited. Uh, everyone is excited about all of these uh, next, uh, next things that are coming up, uh, lots of innovation. I feel like digital health is on everyone's radar but I'm not even sure what does it really mean. So maybe you guys could tell me what you're looking forward to for 2023 and whether or not you think that digital health is actually gonna have meaningful impact so that we can understand what it means and how it could impact access to care and everything else that we're all getting excited about. Because I saw that at ESC, uh, Gabrielle, this year, uh, one of the spotlights is digital digital health and a lot of um, underlying uh, uh, very, very much so putting a lot of attention in heart failure, both those two areas being uh, highly uh, underlined. So Athena, what are you looking forward to in 2023? I think that digital health is an important thing for us to sort of dissect because we learned that we can do telehealth, which is get on the phone and talk to people during the pandemic which was fantastic. It was a, a, a great move that we had to do. Um, and really, I think for a lot of patients was potentially life-saving, right? So they were able to reach out, we were able to connect with them. But digital health is much, much, much more than that. It's about utilizing a lot of the wearable data. It's about utilizing some of the pragmatic data we have for trials. It's about taking that information in real time and finding a way besides phone calls to activate that and respond to that in real time, and then using that as pragmatic trials to study it. So 
I'm looking forward to this next piece. I think there's going to be a bit of a gap where we utilize perhaps more AI to, to assess some of this information so that we don't have to, but um, to have, you know, digital stethoscope with a patient that needs be, and that gets us a little more access, whether it's rural or urban uh, population so that we can access them. So I'm looking for the next wave, the 2.0, where we move from telehealth to truly digital health. Nice. Gabrielle, what, what are you excited about? Oh, I'm excited about many things. Um, first of all, obviously, AI and digital health are very big. There's not a single field in cardiovascular research that is not affected by this. But I would say that I haven't seen yet the practical implementation of much of this research. It, it's largely remaining a promise as we talk. Mm. Doesn't mean it's not going to materialize. I think it will materialize very, very heavily. Uh, but I, I want to see more pragmatic results uh, on this. And we're all working in, on various studies in trying to implement the best of AI for imaging, for diagnosis, for prognosis, for uh, um, identification of proper targets and so on. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, an interesting area to think that we are able already now looking at a um, REST EKG to predict the probability of a FIB is mind-boggling, if only for that. But there's much more information coming and much more, many more results coming up. I'm also quite excited about the prospects for gene editing. I think we've seen the cardiovascular application of gene editing with ATTR amyloidosis. Um, and I, I find this mind-boggling that this, which was a Nobel Prize discovery a few years ago, is already implemented in the clinic and already treating patients uh, is amazing. Of course, uh, we need to have more trials, more results to monitor the efficacy, safety, and cost of these therapies, but it's mind-boggling. And we're seeing outside of cardiology how this is potentially also affecting many other areas, um, sickle cell disease and, and others are really cases in point where we have prospects for treatment that is so effective and so definitive. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about this and including in cardiology and cardiovascular prevention, there will be avenues for this, for treating homozygous uh, familial hypercholesterolemia and maybe in the future as we, we were seeing with the attempts of VERV, uh, maybe even um, common hypercholesterolemia one day, who knows? So I think the prospects are very exciting there. I'm also excited about the uh, new metabolic agents that are coming up. We've seen um, a couple of years of great success of heart failure drugs. Uh, we've had treatments that are effective now for HEFPEF. We have the uh, uh, quadruple therapy for HEFREF. Um, but now we're seeing agents that come up that are extremely effective at tackling the risk of obesity and reversing obesity. Uh, so effective that they may put in question the use of bariatric surgery, which is quite established, and that they may affect on a population basis the risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes uh, in, in our countries. So I think that's really uh, very exciting if it's truly effective, safe, and sustained, which remains to be demonstrated. Um, but I think there are prospects that are quite exciting. Lipids are moving all around. I mean, we've, we've worked on LDL for 25 years, but now LPLA, um, triglycerides, um, uh, we're seeing a, a flurry of uh, uh, new targets for uh, dyslipidemia treatment with new effective agents that are coming up and are being tested in large phase three trials. 
so it's it's also a very exciting time there. So there's a lot of action ongoing in the trials and in science. That's that's amazing, and I I always like to kind of finish with a real positive uh, note. But I do want to tease you guys a little bit about: Are you worried about um, COVID and in 2023? And what about long COVID? The kinds of things that many patients are asking us, and when do we stop vaccinating ourselves? And there's this feeling of exhaustion on those points. And then lastly, I wanna talk about the, the burden, especially the mental health of our healthcare providers. And I think we're seeing more and more as a very important effect of these great therapies coming forward, but yet our healthcare delivery and those who deliver healthcare seem to be under so much mental duress. I think these are two issues that I think we're going to keep hearing about in 2023. So you think long COVID is a thing? Athena, what Absolutely. do you think? Yeah, I, there's no doubt that it is. I think the challenge is we don't have a measure of it. And when we can't measure things, it makes us anxious because we have we don't have any a lot of objective measures, right? We have a lot of subjective measures. So it's real. We, I think we need to focus our work, and this is general medicine, not necessarily cardiology per se, of what this means and the mechanism behind it to better understand it, because there'll be another virus or pandemic that could affect various organs that we'll need to understand. And we need to understand what is and isn't long COVID. And it this does link with mental health. So people, there's mental health is not only in our, so I think that's important. I think we need to do a lot of research on that. A hundred percent. We need to understand it and we need to understand what we can and can't treat. Um, is it a post-viral phenomenon or not? Um, maybe Lyme disease will give us some information. And how does this link with the mental health, not only of our healthcare providers, absolutely folks are burnt out, but this is not, it's emblematic in, in medicine because we were frontline. Um, but it's every aspect. Look at the work on children and teenagers and people with developmental disabilities that were really greatly impacted, mothers home with children. Um, the mental health effects of completely, not the virus, but changing our society and the way we function or do or don't see people is significant. Um, and teasing apart the long COVID from the mental stress of, of COVID, I think is important. And we'll sort through that. And one, it's, a, it's similar in some ways to starting the conversation. As soon as we know, we, first we need to know there's a problem and then we need to look at real solutions, whether it's, you know, in, in medicine, it's looking at administrative burden, not continuing to put physicians and other healthcare providers on the wheel of doing a little more to make a little more money, right? So, and in other fields as well, people are having, you know, people are retiring and having having thoughts about what, what is, what is it about? Why am I doing this? Am I doing it for the right reason? So a time for reflection, but that's a time of stress. So I think the positive of all this is um, we'll learn more. We have to, it's what we do as scientists and in medicine, we, we need to understand it so we can treat it. And then in mental health, it's saying it's important and we need to look at it and we need to treat it and recognize work-life balance or not balance, but what is, what is out there that's important to us. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a big, long thing. And, and we yeah, always I'll be to... quick. I'll be yeah. quick. I'll start with the Yogi Berra disclaimer that it's really hard to make predictions about the future. But um, we had a fear uh, at the onset of COVID that the uh, 
large proportion of patients who had cardiac injury as measured by biomarkers would translate years later into uh, an epidemic of heart failure. And I have to say that with all due respect, I don't think that this is happening. We haven't seen that, at least we haven't seen it yet, and I certainly hope we don't see it. So that's the good news. But I do agree that there are cases that are undoubtedly troubling of long COVID and patients who keep disability that seems to be quite sustained and impressive. They're not common, but there are some patients for whom really we don't understand what's happening, and we absolutely need to study this carefully and to do more research. The other thing I would say uh, with respect to physician and, and, and caregivers burnout is that I can tell you this is a worldwide thing. It's very real in our country. Uh, at my institution, we have 15 to 20% of nurses who have quit. We had to close almost 40% of our CCU for a sustained period of time. We have wards that are closed, including in my cardiology department, because uh, nurses are quitting. And every month I get um, a, a letter of uh, of um, uh, a nurse who says uh, she's quitting and she's not solely quitting the hospital, they're quitting the profession. That's what's impressive. They're, they're quitting Paris, they're going to live in the countryside where cost of living is lower and they're gonna become a baker, yoga teacher. Uh, you know, uh, uh, They're gonna open a restaurant, uh, change a new profession. That's something that they find more meaningful and less stressful. And I think it tells a lot about how hard it is to be uh, a healthcare professional, uh, and particularly the stress that's been put on nurses, even more so than doctors, because the nurses were really on the front lines, and the it's truly almost PTSD that they've experienced. Now, you know, um, I, we just came over a, a three-day, I'm sure, uh, Athena, you heard about the, the strike here at Mount Sinai Hospital, the entire, uh, the, all the nurses, 7,000 nurses, Mount Sinai and Montefiore went on strike for three days. We had no nurses. We stopped all procedures. We saw the impact that it had on not being able to actually care for patients in the way we would normally, of course, you know, everybody pitched in to try to do what we always do for emergent, urgent cases. But there's no question that their biggest cry is the fact that they are exhausted, that they need more help, that they need more staffing, that they need more care, and they need more time off. And they can't, and the burden has been huge. So we need to focus on that. Mental health matters. I think um, this is in uh, no question that I believe that 2023 will be a even better year. I, I agree with all of you that 2022 was great to be able to see all of us together and just not wear a mask sometimes, <laughs> you know, and just being able to, to talk to each other and, and be able to hug and 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 uh, really exchange information. There's a lot of great science coming our way. And yes, the burden is strong. The burden of uh, our mental health um, uh, issues are definitely there in the front, front and center for all of us, but we'll get through this. And I am certain that 2023 will be a great year. Thank you so much for your, uh, for your um, thoughts, for your friendship, um, for the fact that you tune in and, and um, I always call on you and you always say yes and thank you for that. And uh, it's just been great just chatting with you guys. It's just a great excuse to see you and talk to you both. And uh, until we meet again, thank you all. And uh, it's Roxana Moran signing off of DCTMD, Rox Heart Radio. Listen, keep on listening. We got great stuff for you. <laughs>